This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. In this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. Be sure to check out and subscribe to the Voluntarist Voices podcast brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntarist Voices is a podcast featuring lectures, interviews, and audio essays by intellectual giants past and present. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're going to look at some Stoic teachings today. The first will be out of Holiday and Hanselman's book, The Daily Stoic, the entry for January 8th. And the second will be related to something that I've experienced recently that I'll talk about. But the actual quote will be from Demetrius the Cynic, who was a contemporary of Seneca, the Stoic. All right, so we'll start with a Seneca quote from January 8th of The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. He writes, We must give up many things to which we are addicted, considering them to be good. Otherwise, courage will vanish, which should continually test itself. Greatness of soul will be lost, which can't stand out unless it disdains as petty what the mob regards as most desirable. So that's the end of the quote, and it's from Seneca in Moral Letter 74.12b-13. We must give up many things to which we are addicted considering them to be good. Just taking that by itself, it's probably worth taking a look at uh, our behaviors and our, I guess, hobbies and our routines to determine which are the things that uh, we do that we may have an addiction to. Now, this begs the question, I guess. I think the word addiction is thrown around very loosely these days. And it's it's it doesn't always mean what it should mean, I guess. Right. So what what is an addiction? What is an actual addiction? Not not just something that you're fascinated fascinated by. Something that you're fascinated by that you keep going back to because it's fascinating. Right. You could say, well, you watch a lot of TV shows. You must be addicted to TV. Right. You could say you eat a lot of food. You must be addicted to food. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. So what what is meant by addiction? Well, I don't know what Seneca meant by addiction, and maybe uh, Holiday and Hanselman have have a bit more to add on that. But addiction is this is something that's being studied by psychologists and neuroscientists and whatnot. And what they seem to be finding, in my understanding, is that addiction has is a bit more about how the activity makes us feel. And it's it's addiction in the problematic sense if we don't otherwise have connection with other people. If we don't have social connection with other people, we don't have loving relationships that are a part of our lives, and we don't feel included and a part of uh, and important to other people, then we're not getting those certain brain chemicals. Serotonin, I think is what it's called. Um, 
right? The feel good, the, the, you know, when somebody shows affection, when they hug you, uh, when a baby's suckling and looking in their mother's eyes, they're getting serotonin, the love chemical, the love hormone. And when somebody is, is getting what they need in that regard, then addiction is far less likely. Because what addiction does is addiction gives you the serotonin. Okay, whatever it is you're doing, it gives you the hormone. It gives you that, that serotonin boost. And that's why you go back to it again and again. But if you've got another source of that, then it's a lot harder to, to, to get addicted to stuff. Now, does that mean that things like uh, cocaine are not chemically addictive? Well, that's, that's what's being studied by some people. And there's a really, let me, let me do a quick search here. There was a really, um, really interesting interview I listened to by a guy named Johan, Johan Hari. He's a, a British writer and journalist, and he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I've, I've heard him on a couple of other podcasts. And he spoke at TED. And he's the author of a book called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Addiction, I believe. They cut it off. Uh, sorry, The Real Causes of Depression, as well as Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. So he's, he's done a lot of research, and he's really dug into some of these questions of where addictions come from. Um, and he was on Joe Rogan talking about it. So I'll, I'll link to that episode. But that's really what he was talking about. And he was looking at, you know, experiments they've done with mice and whatnot. And mice that had loving relationships with others, right, they had social uh, support and community, did not keep going back to the drugged water to get their fix. And those that were isolated kept going back and became chemically, quote unquote, chemically addicted. So that, that was interesting. He talked all about that experiment. So, you know, when, when Seneca says we must give up many things to which we are addicted, considering them to be good, right, there are things that, that we, may, we may in fact be addicted to. It may be providing the serotonin that we're not getting with our, our friends and family, right? So we are addicted. But there may just be things that we're fascinated by that we, we very much enjoy. We, we keep doing them. It might be watching shows, it might be watching certain YouTube channels, it might be movies, it might be it might be books, it might be video games, it might be social media, who knows. But just because somebody spends a lot of time with something, I don't think it's fair to automatically assume that they have some sort of addiction in the impairment sense, right? And I think that's what he's talking about. We consider things that we're addicted to to be good because they're fascinating, we enjoy them, there's the serotonin. Um, but it's really an impairment in some way. It's, it really is negatively affecting our lives in some way. And he says, otherwise, courage will vanish, which should continually test itself. Um, it, it, it can be difficult to see the impairment. It can be difficult to see where it is we've gone wrong. And giving up the addiction, trying to overcome it, seeing it and overcoming it, that's, that's, that's what courage is. Then the second part here is a little interesting. It says, greatness of soul will be lost, which can't stand out unless it disdains as petty what the mob regards as most desirable. So now he's talking about thing, you know, popular things that everybody loves. Greatness of soul will be lost, which can't stand out unless it disdains as petty what the mob regards as most desirable. Um, I'm not really sure what he means here, to be honest. Sounds to me like he's, I, we could, I could read this as him moralizing and saying what the the mob regards as most de desirable, well, maybe we should, in a moralistic sense, disdain it as petty. But I don't know if that's what he's saying. I don't want to say that's what he's saying, because he may not be saying that. What is meant by greatness of soul? Hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's go on to um, what Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman 
add commentary-wise to this. They say, what we consider to be harmless indulgences can easily become full-blown addictions. We start with coffee in the morning, and soon enough we can't start the day without it. We check our email because it's part of our job, and soon enough we feel the phantom buzz of the phone in our pocket every few seconds. Soon enough, these harmless habits are running our lives. Okay? The little compulsions and drives we have not only chip away at our freedom and sovereignty, they cloud our clarity. We think we're in control, but are we really? As one addict put it, addiction is when we've lost the freedom to abstain. Let us reclaim that freedom. What the addiction is, for you, can vary. Soda, drugs, complaining, gossip, the internet, biting your nails. But you must reclaim the ability to abstain because within it is your clarity and self-control. Okay, so it says the little compulsions and drives we have not only chip away at our freedom and sovereignty, they cloud our clarity. We think we're in control, but are we really? I like that. I think that's, that's part of that impairment I talked about, where to some extent we are enslaved to the addiction and that that can have that can have not always but but more likely than not it can have pretty disastrous effects in our life um are you addicted to to coffee in the morning having your coffee every morning well i like it and there is some sort of chemical component there because when i don't have it i i get a headache so i have a coffee in the morning before I work my morning shift, my lunch shift, and I have a coffee in the evening before my dinner shift. And if I if I miss one, then I'll wake up the next day and I'll have a headache. So there is some sort of uh, physical withdrawal that's happening there by not having the caffeine that my that my body's uh, addicted to. It's also part of my routine. It's also something I I, I like. I I put some some stuff in there that I think's uh, you know supplemental wise that I think's good for me. So my coffee in the morning is not an issue for me. It's not an impairment. That that addiction I have to that, and I readily acknowledge that it is an addiction, it's not impairing my life unless I miss it and I get a headache and then maybe I'm a bit grumpier, you know, until I, I get some more and then wait a few hours and it's it's in my system and the headache goes away. So if I don't if I don't keep on top of it, I don't have reminders on my phone to remind me not to forget. If I leave the house without having it, I can remember, oh, I got to get something, so I'll stop at a, a convenience store, 7-Eleven, and I'll, I'll pick up a, a monster. Um, I, like, I really like their Java monsters, the Mean Bean or the Irish Cream or the Kona Blend. Those are my three favorite. Anyway, not to plug monster. Um, you know, so I've got reminders on my phone because I don't, I don't want that headache. I don't want to be grumpy. So, yeah, in some sense, this addiction I have has some control over me. Now, I could... The reason I started taking it was because, you know, I heard a lot about how it gives you, it can cure your lethargy, it can give you a bit of a, a jump in your step. And at first, it certainly did. And I think it does, but in a very minor way. I think I have to have a bit more of it than I do. I do try to limit it to just, you know, one cup in the morning, one cup in the evening. I don't want to drink more than that because I don't want to feel uh, much more than that. I kind of feel jittery and I don't like that. So when I first started Drinking it, I was like, wow, this is great. And I had all kinds of energy and motivation. And that sort of didn't fade entirely, but it sort of blended into the rest of my my life, if you will. So this this addiction, you know, I recognize it. I acknowledge it. Yeah, there is some control there that I've lost uh, because I don't want to go through. I don't want to lose what it gives me positively. And I also don't want to go through those withdrawal pains. You know, I don't know how long that headache is going to last as my body is reeling from not getting its uh, its fix. 
I've talked about, um, I don't think I've talked about it on this podcast. I think I talked about it on my other one, but I have, I have come to really like recording a podcast every morning. And if I don't do that, I kind of feel like the day's been wasted. Now, I don't know that that has arisen to any sort of addiction level because I can get through the day fine. I don't feel, you know, physically discomfort or anything like that. It just, something just feels like it's missing and I'm excited for the next day to record something. So, you know, is that an addiction? I don't think so. I wouldn't call it a full-blown addiction like like the term they used here. So, you know, I think the first step we can do to seeing our addictions is to acknowledge them, take take stock of what we do day to day, the things we put into our body, the activities we engage in, take stock of that, but also take stock of what we might be missing. Are we missing relationships? Are we missing are we missing love and warmth in our life by friends and family? Because if we're not getting our serotonin, <laughs> our serotonin fix, <laughs> I suppose we're addicted to that, right? That's ultimately what it is, what it's about. And this, I don't know, can we call this a natural addiction? Well, it, it makes, it makes life worth living, I guess, right? Feeling that warmth and that connection with other people. And I think, you know, we're social animals. I think not everybody, there are exceptions to this. Some people are uh, very, um, you know, voluntarily isolated, and that's that's what they prefer. I, I get that. But I think for most of us, most of humanity, we need to be around other people, and we need loving relationships with those people. All right, let's go on to the next topic, which is similar, I would say. So, as I usually do, I go into the Stoicism subreddit, and I sort it by most popular for the last week, and I just browse through and find something interesting. As I was doing that, I remembered that I, I've had a bit of an ordeal this past couple weeks with something. And so I wanted to find a, a, a quote um, on that, that particular ordeal that I went through. So let me tell you what I went through, and then I'll tell you what I found. It's, it's actually not by a Stoic. It's by Demetrius the Cynic, as I said, who was a contemporary of Seneca. For the past, I don't know, six or seven years, in my backyard, which is actually on the side of our house, it's on the south side of our house, our, our house faces west. So our backyard is not easily accessible. And it's never been a place where my kids will go out and play or we'll go out and hang out because it's on the side of the house. You, got, you go out the back of the house on the east side and then you have to walk through a narrow, narrow space to it. So I stopped maintaining it about seven or eight years ago. But the sprinklers would keep going. So it, it sort of became a bit of an oasis. It started just growing all kinds of stuff. And eventually what popped up were trees, okay? Trees that popped out of the roots from, my guess is, neighboring trees, probably city trees, you know, in the parking area and whatnot, and other trees from other people's yards. These started popping up. And at first they were little and thin, and then they, they grew, and they filled my backyard. Okay, it was it was my forest or my jungle. I th I think I like calling it a forest better. And it grew slowly, and I watched it grow, right, day in day out, month in month out, year in year out. And I was proud of it. I enjoyed it, and I I it actually meant more to me than I realized. So my wife decided she wanted to do some sort of project back there. I still don't know what. And that she wanted to cut them. She had she she had that, but she also had concern that some of the trees may be too close to the house, and she thought that they were going to get really big. I mean, they were maybe eight eight to ten inches in diameter as it is. Okay, right today they're not. They weren't. Well, 
there is no today, but they were they were pretty they were getting pretty thick and we didn't we didn't know when it was gonna stop, you know, where it was gonna stop. So I cut some of the trees that were closer to the house and I've kind of always maintained a, you know, three foot bar- three or four foot barrier from the house. And I th- I think that's fine. I still do. So we have some behind the house and then over in the in the yard and we have some along the west fence along the sidewalk. We have some that go all the way along. And I like I said, I really enjoyed them. But she's she's been asking me to cut most of them down because she has this fear, but she also thinks she wants to do some project. I don't know, maybe some gardening project. We talked about maybe building a deck out at one of our front doors over to the south and into the backyard and make it a little bit more accessible out of one of our front doors. We have two front doors because we have an addition on our house. Anyway, and I told her, you know, she kept asking. I kept telling her, no, I don't want you to. And eventually I said, look, I'm not going to stop you if you want to do it, but I really don't want you to. And if you do it, I'll, I'll probably feel really sad about it. Um, and then we had this giant windstorm about a month or so ago. And a lot of trees in the neighborhood and, and in the city, big trees were ripped out of the ground and, you know, went sideways, root systems and everything. Mostly it's the planted trees, right? The city trees. My forest held strong and true. I think because they were young, they were very flexible. They just kind of would bend down when the when the gusts would hit. But I think it's also because their root systems were all tied together. They were They were strong. They were naturally grown. They weren't planted. Some of my fence did break, and my father-in-law would come over to help her fix that. And she, with the chainsaw I had bought um, with him, and I, I guess somebody else who's done some work with us, she'd have them come over and start cutting down the trees. And I thought she was finished at one point, and there were still some big ones in the middle and the ones behind my house and all the ones along my fence. And I was like, okay, and I made peace with that. But then those ones disappeared. I noticed they were gone. And it just hit me. It just hit me this this incredible sense of loss. Okay, this this feeling as if my house burned down. Okay, this this efo- this emotion that I felt went really deep, deeper than I thought that it would. Okay, I was I was inside. I was devastated. And she she knew I wasn't happy with her, and we kind of had a a bit of a a thing about it. And she knows I wasn't happy that she did it, and I you know. She kept telling me, you gave me permission. And I kept telling her, well, I said you could do it, but that I wouldn't be happy about it. And this, this is the consequence of that. I can't pretend to not, to not be sad right now. So I had this, this very heavy emotional experience from this, from seeing this, this, this devastation in my yard. Okay, it's, it's as if, you know, a forest fire came through and they're just gone, except for all the trees along the fence. So I begged her. I said, please, don't, don't cut these down. These aren't in the yard. They're not, you know, they're not going to interfere with whatever project you want going on. And she's not going to. So I have, I have those. My grand forest has been reduced to a few trees. But like I said, this, this was more devastating to me than I had any inkling that it would be. And I've told her this when we, when we made up and worked things out. I said, had I known how this was going to make me feel, I would have fought harder for it. I would have fought harder for this not to happen. We could have maybe worked something out. You could have given me more specific plans about what project you wanted to do. And maybe we could have cut down some of the trees to make that fit, but not not a complete wasteland. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to think badly of my wife. She is wonderful. She really is. And it's not fair to her that I, it wasn't fair to her that I was so upset with her because she, and neither did I, she didn't know and neither did I just how much it meant to me. Why it meant to me, why it meant that much to me, I'm still trying to figure out. I have some ideas about that. 
which I'm not going to share. But it was important. So this this brings me, you know, when things like this happen, at some point, you try to remember your your Stoic teachings. You try to remember what it is you've read, what it is you've learned about dealing with this sort of thing, right? When you when you when you lose something important to you, that can make you feel very very bad. So I was looking for something along the lines of attachment because I had become attached to this forest, this this material thing, right? It's not a it's not a person. It's not a family member. It's not my wife. It's not one of my children who I'm also attached to. But I thought, I think the Stoics have said something about this concept of attachment. And I was trying to find something, and this is the first thing I found, and I didn't want to keep looking because usually when I do much time researching what I'm going to do for the episode, I, I can lose motivation to, do, to, to, to actually record something because it kind of wipes you out, boring, the boring research part. So I found this. It's by Demetrius. Um, and he says... If I cherish my body, I will. I, I make a slave of myself. If I cherish my property, I make a slave of myself, because I have disclosed the means to make me captive. When a snake pulls back its head, right away I think, hit it just here, just there on the part that it's protecting. In the same way, you may be sure that whatever you are seen to protect, that will become your enemy's focus of attack. Keep this in mind. Then there will be no one you will need to fear or flatter. All right, I don't know how applicable this is to my situation. Now, I, su- I suppose if somebody somebody wanted to hurt me, which is not, which is absolutely not the case with my wife, she did not want to hurt me. They, you know, if they found out that I that I and I didn't even know if they found out I had this attachment to my forest, then they could come and threaten my forest and and in that sense use it to coerce me, to control me, to make me their slave. Right? This can happen to any of us. We have attachments to our wives, to our children, to family, to friends. And if our enemies, our enemies, and this, you see this in like, uh, you see this in superhero comics and, and movies and stuff, right? They'll, they'll, you know, one of the reasons that they protect their secret identity is so that their enemies can't use their attachments against them. If I know that you're Peter Parker and I know that you're attached to your aunt, I will kidnap your aunt and, and use use that to coerce you, to get you to do what I want you to do, to make you my slave, right? So we have these attachments. They're people, for many people, they're property. It could be your force. It could be your house. It could be your car. It could be your computer. It could be your phone. And what he's talking about here is being made a slave to an enemy, to somebody else. So that's interesting. And I think that's important to keep in mind. But I'm looking more for what what are what are these folks these guys these these ancient philosophers what do they have to say about attachment and loss because i was sad when i lost my forest and it put me unfairly let me let me stress that unfairly it put me against the person who i felt took that from me she did take it from me she didn't take it in the spirit that an enemy would have but she did she was the cause for it being destroyed. And so that put me against her for a bit. Had I not been so attached to it, our relationship would not have been, I'm not going to say it was ever in peril. It's not. We've been married 16 years. Our our, our relationship and attachment is far stronger than, than this could have threatened. But it did, it did put us at odds for a few days and it became a, an emotional thing between us. But what else am I attached to? That somebody could uh, a- advertently... <laughs> intentionally or unintentionally take away from me that would that could cause so much damage 
it, to the, to that extent, I am enslaved to it. Is that good or bad? Well, I think life, look, life is short. I think it's okay to, to have things, to be attached to things, to have things that are important to you. But I think, I think that, so at first I was looking for this, you know, something about attachment. But as this was actually happening, what I did focus on was, was feeling my emotions. Okay. And I wasn't, you know, I never raged out or anything like that. It was just, it was just me being distant and I don't want to be around you right now. It was that sort of stuff. And in time it faded and we were able to come together and talk. And I think that's okay. I think it adds a bit of something to life. Okay. I was attached more than I realized. It was taken from me and I experienced some level of devastation, emotional devastation. What I didn't do while I was experiencing that, and this is the stoic insight. When you are experiencing heavy emotions, just feel the emotions. Don't involve anybody else. Okay, just feel your anger, feel your sadness, feel your whatever whatever negative emotions it is. Just sit with them. Meditate on them. Try to figure out why. Think about why you're feeling this. Think about what it is you've lost and try to figure out why it was so important to you more than you realized. So that's what I did. And that's that's where stoicism really helped me. <laughs> and then at some point, this was kind of funny. At the some point at some point towards the end, my wife's trying to trying to make up with me, trying to make things right. And I'm still, you know, still pushing her away. And she she says, <laughs> we're a little bit more talkative to each other, so it's not like she's throwing this as a weapon at me. She says, What does it matter? In a hundred years, we're both gonna be dead. And I, I believe I've said this on this podcast before, but this is something that I've I've always kept in mind. And that made me laugh. It made me laugh and I said, how dare you use my own spells against me? <laughs> right, the Harry Potter line. Snape says it, how dare you use my own spells against me? <laughs> so that was that was helpful. It was annoying, right? It was annoying that she said it, but it was it was it was funny. It was the right time to say that. Had she said it before, I it wouldn't I wouldn't have taken it the same way. And that's, you know, that's another thing that I've learned from Stoicism. Yeah, you know, look, in 100 years, we're dead, we're gone. What does it really matter? What does it truly matter? Well, it did matter. And it's important to acknowledge that. It's important to recognize that it did matter, right? Just sit with that for a bit. Take a moment and sit with your loss, your devastation, whatever it is. Just sit with it. Don't allow it to influence decisions. Okay, that's the Stoic insight. Don't allow it to influence decisions. Make those decisions, whatever decisions need to be made, much later. For now, just sit with it and feel it. That's okay. Stoicism does not say bury it, don't feel it, repress your emotions. Stoicism is not Vulcanism. That's a, that's a, that's a giant misunderstanding, a very unfortunate one. All Stoicism says is feel it, but be careful not to let it, allow it to influence your decisions. So that's what I did. So that, that's my takeaway here. Attachments can enslave you, and emotions should be felt with, but sh you should not allow them to influence decisions that need to be made at some point. All right, let's review. We looked at Seneca and addiction, and Holiday and Hanselman, and then we looked at, and I'll link to that addiction episode by uh, uh, Johan Hari on the Joe Rogan podcast. It was a very good conversation. It was like three hours, and they were talking about all kinds of stuff. And then we looked at my own experience with devastation recently and attachment and 
mastering our emotions in the way of feeling them, but not making important decisions while under their spell, I should say. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. 